25. We've been going through the book of Joshua. And if you'll remember, we went through Jericho. Uh, and they took Jericho, and then Achan took the devoted things. There was one of the Israelites that did something that he wasn't supposed to do. He took some of the, of the plunder, and as a result, uh, the Israelites were defeated at the next town, which really was this little hamlet called Ai. And I'm actually starting to uh, uh, move a little bit ahead. We're going to be looking at specific sections. So uh, the Israelites have purged the evil from them. They have taken Ai, and now God has instructed them to do something, to go and create an altar. And so that's what we're going to talk about. This is after Ai, uh, when uh, Joshua builds an altar. Joshua 8, 30 through 35. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord, and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first, to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. The word of the Lord. Well, I want to let you in on a piece of Rodriguez family lore as I show you what I simply call the books, the Old and the New Testament, as it were. I got these from my mother, who went on a creative memories kick. Is that what it's called, creative memories? <laughs> and, and she decided she had some time, she had gratuitous amounts of cash for this uh, lignin-free paper, and thus she took all of my uh, pictures and past accomplishments and put them in binders. So I would have a complete history of Carlos Rodriguez, the life of Carlos Rodriguez. <laughs> <laughs> and what is really neat is my, my mom was not a Christian. When, I didn't grow up in a family of faith, but she has since come to the Lord, and so she's almost re, recast my history, if you will, in light of God's uh, promises and presence upon my Jesus loves Carlos. Apparently, I did this when I was a, uh, a long uh, a kid, and somehow she kept it. And what I find so interesting is this verse, Exodus 9, 16, is one of my life verses. Uh, that she wrote on it. She didn't know that. Look at that cute little child looking somewhat alienish, somewhat like the uh, little aliens from Toy Story. Oh, come on, jeez. Yeah. I can't take it. I can't take it. And it goes on and on and on in nauseous detail of every single aspect. And then we move into the high school years, the New Testament. Uh, we've got some pictures of playing tennis and soccer and... If you wouldn't know it, I was just the most accomplished person ever. I really can't believe how much I've done. I'm surprised I didn't write a biography of myself at age 21 like Justin Bieber or something. 
Justin Bieber even 21 at this point? <laughs> you know, I shared with you the books because the books are important. You know, it's important to have a remembrance of who you are. These books help me to remember who I am, and they also help me to remember who I am not. They paint a picture, a path, an identity in which I am supposed to walk, to be consistent with who I'm supposed to be. They help me remember who I am. They also help me remember whose I am. I belong to a family. I'm not an autonomous being that somehow spontaneously generated out of thin air. I was born into a family. I have a history. I have parentage. I have lineage. I am not autonomous. Helps me to realize that I live my life more than simply for myself. The bad or good in my life reflects, is tied to my parents and my parents' parents and those who go before me and those who will come after me. See, all of us, we have books, whether they've been written down or not, whether you have them in set form, whether you're, you consider your childhood a blessing or a curse. If you are a Christian, you have a heavenly father, you have a story to tell. You're not an autonomous being. And neither are these Israelites, these people that God has claimed. Never before has God claimed a nation out of nowhere, and he's made them his own. Not because of their brilliance, not because of their prowess, but rather because of the sovereign election and grace of God. God has claimed them. He's given them a new identity, a new story, a new way to walk. He's adding to their book day by day by day. He's helping them to understand that they have a new identity, a new way to walk, and that they are not their own. That they are to follow His will and His ways, the one who birthed them, the one who is leading them. He's also giving them encouragement of this, but he's also giving them warning that I've set a path for you to live, and if you walk in it, you will receive blessing. But if you do not walk consistently with who you are, who I've made you to be, you will experience pain, you will experience suffering, you will experience cursing. The story of my family, the Rodriguez family, the story of Israel, is also the story of the church. If you are a Christian, God has claimed you. He's made you His own. Not because of your brilliance or your beauty or your wisdom, but because of His sovereign mercy and grace. And He's given you a new way in which to walk. See, we don't get to be autonomous beings, no one in this planet, whether they are the family of God or not. But we are under the family of God, and so we have the privileges of having His name and the responsibilities of walking in His ways. And so this picture here, this covenant ceremony, is giving us a picture of how it is that God wants us to live. He's really showing us three things. Number one, that we must live under His law. That God has given us a way in which we are to live, and there will be blessings and cursings associated with that. But we must not only live under His law, number two, we must live under His grace. God is more than a judge. He's a father. He's one that extends mercy. He's one that walks alongside us, that loves us despite the bad and the good. 
We must live under His law. We must live under His grace. And finally, we must live under His name. There is only, in the end, one name, one set of books that will be remembered. The people of God. The book of life. To enter into the name, into the roles, is to confess. To put yourself underneath the name of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. See, Jesus Christ has come and He's given His life on this mountain of cursing that we might live with Him in the mountain of grace. And so we are going to walk through this ceremony ourselves. We're going to participate in it. And we're going to see what God has to tell us today. Let's look at the first point. Number one, let's live under His law. Okay, the Israelites have taken Jericho. And they've taken Ai. And inexplicably, not inexplicably, but certainly not strategically, God has directed them to go to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. This is a detour about 20 miles to the northwest. So it's exactly where you don't want to go if you're on a uh, rampage. You know, you're trying to get to the center, you're trying to take out Jerusalem, you're trying to, you know, but all of a sudden these people veer to the left, 20 miles out, if you will, to this place where Shechem, the town of Shechem, is located, and there's Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Now, why has God told them to do this? A couple of reasons. The first is this, that, four, uh, that 600 years before, when Abram was traveling through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem, when Abram was traveling through the Canaanite land, the Lord said to him, appeared to him and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So it's almost like God is taking them full circle. What I have promised to give you, I am doing. I want you to come back to the promise that I have given for you and to claim it. And so they go on pilgrims, 20 miles out of the way to Shechem, to Mount Ebal. But God has also told them when they go into the land that there is a ceremony they are to perform. Deuteronomy 11.22 says, If you carefully observe all these commands I am giving you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and hold fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all of these nations before you and will dispossess them. Every place where you set your foot will be yours. See, I am setting before you a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey your God and turn from the way, excuse me, the blessing if you obey the commands of your Lord God I am giving you today the curse if you disobey the commands and turn away. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the cursings. And so God has called them to this place to do a particular ceremony. I know we have a laptop here. I don't know who has the clicker if you can advance it one. I'll do it right here. No worries. I took a... Uh, <clears throat> I, I flew over to Mount Ebal and Gerizim uh, via Google Maps, and you see a picture. It's a very interesting picture. You, we're standing on Mount Ebal right here, which means the Mountain of Stones. And Mount Gerizim is about a mile uh, across there as the crow flies. And God has commanded them to give the ceremony, and Shechem is in between, that half of the tribes of Israel will ascend to Mount Ebal and its sides, and the other half will go on Mount Gerizim, and they are to shout these blessings and curses to one another as the Ark of the Covenant is in the valley. 
Now, scientists have actually tested this to see if you can do it acoustically, and you can. You can hear one another from the mountain. Keep in mind, if there were 100,000 people speaking simultaneously, what you would hear. And so there is this ceremony that's going on. Deuteronomy 27.2 elaborates, When you have crossed into the Jordan, into the land the Lord your God has given you, set up some large stones and coat them with plaster. Write in them all the words of this law when you have crossed over to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. A land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised. And when you have crossed the Jordan, set up these stones on Mount Ebal as I commanded you, and coat them with plaster. Build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. Do not use any iron tool upon them. Build the altar of the Lord your God with field stones and offer burnt offerings. Sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating them and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. And you shall write very clearly all the words of the law of these stones you have set up. Why is God doing this? Taking all of this time to rehash God's plan for their life. I think it's because God wants to ground them. You know, one of the most dangerous things that can happen in your life is you become successful at it. Because all of a sudden, there's the adulation of the crowd and the bank account. And you lose sight of who you are. You step away from it. You forget. And so God is calling upon the Israelites to remember my promises. Remember my ways. And to remember my covenant. And the way God calls them to do this is to take these large stones and to write the, the law, all the words of the law, upon these stones. It's very unlikely that one can write the entire copy of the law. He may be talking about the Ten Commandments. We don't exactly know. But they're the laws that people would know to remember to ground them. This is who you are. This is how you are to obey. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no gods before you. You shall not bow down or worship an idol. You shall honor your father, father and mother. You shall not lie, you shall not deceive, and so on, and so on. These ten stones. And then, after writing these stones, these triptychs here, he splits them up and he divides the people. And I believe he was to stand in between them. So he would be right here, and there would be two different sets of people on the two mountainsides. And Joshua would say, if you fully obey the Lord your God, and carefully follow all his obeyments, uh, commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And then Mount Gerizim, the people on Mount Gerizim would say this, you will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, and the crops of your land, and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in, and blessed when you go out. And it would go on and on and on. There's, if you read the blessings in Deuteronomy 28, there's blessings that they will bow to no other nation. They will be invincible militarily. They will prosper. The name and reputation of Israel will spread, and people will see the glory of the Lord. You can maybe hear the cacophony of these voices coming across the valley, the blessings for obeying. And now Ebal would respond. 
But if you do not obey, you will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. And the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. And it actually continues. There's actually 12 sets of curses. Seven afflictions of what will happen. Ultimately, what will happen is that what is happening to the enemies of Israel, those curses will fall upon them and they will ultimately be exiled. Why has God set up this ceremony? He set up this ceremony because we have to choose. We have to choose our destiny. We have to choose who we will obey and how we will walk. Our country and our world has a very perverted understanding of what free will is. Free will is not autonomy. Otherwise, I would be God. I could live however I wanted with no consequences. If I wanted to jump off the Empire State Building, I could do so, and there would be no harm to me. That's not reality. It's rather, free will is choose who will you serve. Choose what you want. The beauty is God doesn't coerce anyone. Choose what it is that you want. And so God is giving them the choice, whose rule will you live under? Now you might say, who says I have to live under anybody else's rule? Well, how do you live? How do you make decisions? Is it how I'm feeling? Is it simply what is beneficial to me? What is it that guides your life and my life? Whose rule am I under? See, we don't believe in our world that there are consequences. And that's why this world is so screwed up. Because our media outlets and our entertainment industry are trying to find ways to outdo one another in terms of evil. And they're simply giving the people what they want. And we're attracted to it. The law of God, where is it? I don't know. The law of the world is simply, what can I get away with? What's in it for me? We all have a law. We all have a stone that's been placed that has its writing on it. And God is saying, who will you choose to serve? You know, there's this new uh, thing coming in. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of Sharia law. Islam, a little bit scary if you're in Britain right now. Because there's a, quantity, there's a population of folks that have come into Britain that are basically saying, we don't have to obey your laws anymore. We are under a higher law, Sharia law, Muslim law. And so basically they have come into a land and they are taking the law and setting it aside and saying, this is the law that we are to live by. We live in this land ourselves. The question is, what law do we live by? Ignorance of the law is no excuse for not obeying it. I remember I just moved to Stanton, Virginia, home of the Statler Brothers and Mary Baldwin. Go Golden Squirrels or whatever that name is. They're called the Golden Squirrels. Very strange. I was in Stanton, was driving, going around a curve, probably going a bit too fast in my rambunctious young life days, got pulled over by the cops. Oh, come on, don't you guys have other things to do? You know? pulling aside a youth worker. So I'm going to fight this, darn it. So I decide I'm going to court. Why don't I pay the fine? I don't know. I'm angry. I'm upset. Do I have any ground or reason? Of course. I live under my own law. I'm in charge. And so I walk in there, and I don't know if you've ever spent any time in the courtroom. It's quite a very interesting cast of characters. Now, the way I was raised, 
you dress, you know, you wear a, you know, I'm the only guy with a sport coat. I'm the only guy with slacks, okay? And it's my turn to come up. And I come before this surly judge, and he looks at me and he says, spit out your gum. I say, sir, I'm not chewing any gum. He says, stop moving your mouth. <laughs> and I'm looking around here at everybody else. I have come to honor the honor, and yet this is the way he's treating me. Now, I could have said to the judge, look, I didn't know the law, okay? So I shouldn't be held accountable to it. You know what he's going to do? He's going to give you the law. Why? Because the law rules supreme. Ignorance of the law is not excuse for not obeying it. I could have said, I'm simply not going to follow these laws anymore. What would he have done? Same thing. See, I can claim to live under any law that I want, but in the end there is one law. At the end of the day, this is such a gracious thing that God is doing because He gives us a choice of which law we will live under. But you and I have been adopted by God into His family. And He calls us to live by His ways. We're not simply part of His family so we can do whatever it is that we want. There is a blessing, my friends, from living in accordance with God's laws. The beauty is to know the law we have, God has given us His Word, specifically His New Testament, that helps to interpret the Old Testament in light of the realities of Jesus Christ's coming. Matthew 7, 12, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Matthew 22, 37, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these commandments. John 14, 21, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. God has given me the path upon which to walk. And he's given it to you. With your family, if you have one. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Parents, teach your children. Forgive one another. Children, honor your parents. The truth of the matter is, a lot of our life when we have problems, the reality is if we examine our life, the reason we're having issues is we've simply refused to live under God's law in that area of our life. And we blame God. God, why, why is this happening to me? I used to, my youth leader, when I would go out on a date, he'd put a Bible in between me and, and the gal I was going out with. Why? Choose this way, day in which you will serve. See, there's a blessing, my friends, when you embrace who God has called you to be. When you take His law, when you apply it to all aspects of your life. But every day, God is in the middle of our life calling us. Choose this day who you will serve. Do you want my blessing or do you want my cursing? To live this way, to live under his law, you must relinquish your right to be the boss. You must know his law. And you must examine your life. You know, all suffering in your life does not come from the curse of God. But there's people I know who have terminal diseases who are infinitely more joyful than people who are extravagantly wealthy and have everything going for them. Because there's a great difference between joy and happiness.
It says, if you obey and walk in my ways, whatever path I take you to, through, I will give you joy. You know you're living in accordance with who you were meant to be. So relinquish your right to be boss. Know his law. Examine your life. Be accountable to somebody else. This is the path that God is calling you. He's calling you to live under his law. This brings me to my second point, that we not only must live under his law, though, we must live under his grace. Look at Joshua 8.31. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, has commanded the Israelites, he built, according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, upon which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. You know, they have discovered this altar. This is Joshua's altar right here. It actually had the same dimensions as the altar of the altar in the temple. It's no mistake that God said, hey, go build this on Mount Ebal, which means Mount Stony. And so they discovered that uh, Israel archaeologists found the altar itself and have uncovered it. You can go and visit it. The altar is set up in the way that Israelites orient their altars, north, east, south, west. This is the altar. So why did God call them to set up a law, these stones for law, and to set up an altar? <coughs> See, I think this shows a picture of God. Joshua functions as the king here. He takes the law. He reads every single bit of it in front of the people. Tells us that the kings were supposed to do that. Joshua wasn't officially a king, but he certainly acted like one. But then, Joshua is the one that builds this altar. He functions as a king, but he also functions as a priest. Offering burnt offerings upon it. Burnt offerings are offerings for sin. And fellowship offerings. Fellowship offerings are where you offer food, and then you also sit down and eat some of it. To symbolize sitting with the Lord. Being right with Him. Why is this altar built? Because I not only need his law, but I need his forgiveness. I not only need his justice, I need his mercy. Where is the altar that was built? Was it built on Mount Gerizim? The mountain of blessing? Uh-uh. It was built on Mount Ebal. The mount of cursing. See, the mount of blessing needs no altar, does it? The mount of cursing does. And I know all too often the way that I choose is not the way of the Lord. That I do choose my own path. That I walk away. See, this picture here of Joshua building this offer, this, this altar, is a foreshadowing of the one who is to come. The one who will build the altar so that God's blessing will always be upon me, even when I deserve His cursing. Psalm 130, it's the question we ask, God, if I fail, will you disown me? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. See, even in the Old Testament, there's always a picture of redemption. You will be cast out into exile because of your sin. But even though you're as far away as the east is from the west, I will gather you and bring you back. See, 1,500 years ago, this altar was built by Joshua. 
But 1,500 years later, a new altar was built in a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, a hill of its own where the trash dump was outside of Jerusalem, a rocky outcropping where an altar was built, a place of cursing, and a sacrifice was brought. Jesus Christ, who took his position on the Mount of Cursing, who became that burnt offering, that the curse of my life could come upon him, that I could experience fellowship with him. See, the foundation of my relationship with God is not my obedience. It's his love. The foundation of my righteousness is not my obedience to the law, but his sacrifice for me. Where do you start your day, my friends? We could start on Mount Gerizim, but I kind of like starting it on Mount Eagle, at the cross, at the bottom, because I know in the worst of my days, the Mount of Cursing has become a Mount of Blessing for me, because I have a high priest who is always there to make intercession for my sins. One of my favorite books growing up as a kid was uh, uh, White Fang by Jack London. Remember the Law of the Wild? What was it? The Law, the Call of the Wild, and White Fang. And White Fang was this half wolf, half dog uh, that was born, and it was born into the wild. And he got close to an Indian camp, and there was something in him that said that I'm supposed to be in the company of man. And so he let himself be caught uh, by this Indian called Gray Beaver. And Gray Beaver wasn't a very good man. And uh, they kind of just threw him in with the rest of the wolves. But they didn't accept White Fang. And so they were vicious on him, the, the, the pack. And he learned to be cruel and cunning and careful. And he became uh, just a, a raging dog. Well, he had a capacity to fight, and so Great Beaver sold him to a man named Beauty Smith. And Beauty was a dog fighter. And as capricious and crooked as one could ever be. And he taught White Fang to hate. He would be arbitrary with him, capricious with him. He'd hand him food one day and then he'd hit him with the club the next day. It would make him so angry and enraged that he struck out at anything he could. Well, this dog uh, earned uh, Beauty Smith a lot, a lot of money. Uh, he would beat any dog. He'd beat wolves, he'd beat lynxes, and then he came up against the bulldog. The problem with the bulldog is basically you can cut him to shreds and they won't stop. And this bulldog got a hold of of a White Fang's throat and is basically choking him off. When a hero emerges on the scene, his name is Whedon Scott. Whedon had compassion on this dog. He was a good man. While Beauty Smith was cruel, he was gracious and kind. And so he stepped into White Fang's world and he rescued him and decided he wanted to try to rehabilitate him. Well, good luck rehabilitating a dog like White Fang. And so Whedon would do all these things. He'd hand him meat, and, and uh, he even unleashed him. And one day Whedon was coming up to him, being gentle and gracious, and, and uh, you know, went down to pet him. And White Fan's instincts got the better of him, and he reached out and he slashed open Whedon Smith's hand. Well, this was the chapter in which White Fan was won over by love. 24 hours had passed since he had slashed open the hand, which was now bandaged and held up by a sling to keep it. In the past, White Fang had experienced delayed punishments, and he apprehended that such a one was about to befall him. How could it be otherwise? He had committed what was to him sacrilege, 
sunk his fangs into the holy flesh of a god, and of a white-skinned superior god at that. In the nature of things and of intercourse with gods, something terrible awaited him. The gods sat down several feet away. He remained quiet and made no movement. And then he came and he brought meat. The meat smelled good. Surely there was lurking something behind. But bit by bit, because he was hungry, infinitely cautious, he approached the hand. At last, he decided to eat the meat from the hand. He never took his eyes from the god, thrusting his head forward with ears flattened back and hair involuntarily rising and crusting on his neck, a low growl rumbling in his throat as warning he was not to be trifled with. And again and again it happened, him feeding as his god went on talking. In his voice was kindness, something of which White Fang had no experience whatever. And with him, it aroused feelings, which he had never likewise experienced before. He was aware of a certain strange satisfaction, as though some need were being gratified, as though some void in his being was being filled. Then again would come the prod of his instinct. The hand lifted and descended in a patting, caressing movement. This continued, and every time the hand lifted, the hair lifted up, and every time the hand descended, the ears flattened down, and a cavernous growl surged in his throat. White Fang growled and growled, and yet, in a strange way, he was being won over by this white god. It was the beginning of the end for White Fang, the ending of the old life and the reign of hate. A new and incomprehensibly fair life was dawning. It required much thinking and endless patience on the part of Wheaton Scott to accomplish this, and on the part of White Fang, it required nothing less than a revolution. He had to ignore the urges and promptings of instinct and reason, defy experience, and give the lie to life itself. God not only calls me to live under his law, but he calls me to live under his grace. See, under, unlike White Fang, who was subjected to the capriciousness of man, I was not born with a blank slate. I chose the path of cursing. I was justly punished much like the thieves on the cross. And yet this God comes to me. He brings me food. He reaches out his hand even when I have slashed it. And he chooses to bring me life. He calls to me, come, you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn upon me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, for my yoke is easy.
We must live under His law. We must choose to live under His grace. And finally, we must live under His name. The thing I love about this passage is it tells us who's there in the middle of the ceremony. Sure, all the Israelites are there. But look at verse 33. All Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with the elders, officials, and judges are standing on both sides of the ark. Verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded to the women and the children and the aliens who lived among them. Who are these aliens? They're random people. They're Rahab, the prostitutes. They're these people who weren't even in the book in the beginning. And yet somehow they have heard the call of the wild, the call of the Lord, and they have come. Much like Jesus who chose the tax collector, the political zealot, the trader, and the fisherman. I don't know what kind of background you have. I don't know what kind of family you grew up in. But I do know the Heavenly Father that stands before you today. He's the one that says, come. I want to bring you in between the mountain of blessing, my law, and the mountain of blessing, my cross. Come and receive the graciousness of my love for you. We're on Mount Ebal, but we must not be afraid. Because Mount Ebal has become Mount Gerizim. For if Christ is for us, who can be against us? So go and live. Live by His law. Experience the blessing of walking in His ways. Examine your life. Live under His grace. Take His name. Receive your destiny as a child of God. One day we will come together on a mountain called Jerusalem, the city of the heavenly angels, in which there will be thousands of voices saying praise to the Lord God Almighty, and all His children will be gathered, and we shall celebrate the banquet and the feast of the kingdom of God. This is the hope we have. It's the promise the Israelites were not able to achieve, but that they and we can achieve because of Jesus Christ. Christ gave his life on the mountain of cursing that we may live with him on the mountain of grace. So by God's grace, let us do so. Let us pray. Lord, it is good to be with your people and to hear your words and your law of how we are to live and to love. Yet we need not fear or shrink from the terror of the day, the terror of the night, the pestilence that stalks at midday. Lord, even though a thousand, ten thousand are ringed around us, we shall not fear, for you are with us. And if you are with us, who can be against us? We claim your altar, the altar of the cross, by which you were cursed, that you might pronounce a blessing upon us, that we who are not your children shall be called sons and daughters of the living God. Lord, help us to walk in purity and holiness, befitting a people who have been ransomed by blood as precious as yours. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.